Well, good evening, everyone. And you're very warm, very warm welcome to each and every one who has made it out in this not such a nice Saturday evening. And I know it's very easy just to sit in the house and beside the fire or watch TV, but it's great that you've joined us. And every night that I come up to the front here, I see new faces, which is always encouraging to see somebody different. So you're very welcome. And once again, I want to extend that welcome to um, those folks who are listening online via Facebook Live. You too are very welcome to join us here tonight. And again, once again, I want to say a special welcome to Reverend Colin Harris. Um, he's been with us since Thursday night, and this is his third night, and he'll be with us tomorrow night as well. And I thank him for coming along each night and presenting God's Word to us. Also, want to thank the choir for leading us, and to Margaret on the piano, and to Heather here, who comes up each evening, and so that I'm not standing here on my own, uh, to help to lead the praise. Then I want to extend a special welcome to our special guests here tonight, and that is to Dr. Gareth Hampton, brothers, and a friend. So I'm not going to say anything more than that, because I'm going to let Barbara do a wee bit more about that later on. But I do want to make them really welcome and to thank them very much. Whenever you ask somebody to come um, from that background, there's always this fear. At the last minute, you're going to get a phone call to say, I can't come, that there's an emergency in Daisy Hill or over in Craig Avon. So, Gareth, the doors are now locked. You can't get out. You're here for the evening. So it's great to have you here. <clears throat> and whenever Gareth goes up later on and you look at his face and you say, I've seen him before, you probably have. He's probably either seen him on TV or else he has stitched you or he's put a plaster of Paris on your arm or something at some stage. So, Gareth, good to have you. Good to have your family and friends with us. And now we're going to spend just a few moments um, in praise just to settle down for the evening. We're going to remain seated as usual and we're going to sing three choruses, three songs. Uh, the first of all is um, that well-known chorus, Be Still uh, uh, for the Presence of the Lord. And God's promises is to be, promises to be with his people together in his name. And he promises to reveal his glory and power to those who earnestly seek him. So just want to still our hearts um, as we come into the meeting tonight and start off by singing Be Still in the Presence of the Lord.
a lovely piece to begin with. Our next piece now is Such Love. This will be one of my favourites, personal favourite of mine. And it just reminds us that Jesus chose to love us, the unlovely, the undeserving. Um, and we can remember his forgiveness, his peace and his hope. And he brings, just as we bring this song now, and we sing it together. And the final piece that we're going to sing tonight, um, another very well-known course and hymn, and that's When I Survey the Wonders Cross, and probably sang more so at Easter than maybe this time of the year, but it really does tie in with um, the Reverend Harris's theme and what he was speaking on tonight. And uh, as we focus on the cross where Jesus um, chose to, to pay the price for our sins, this is a debt that we could never pay, and he has freed us, and he has um, made us special through his sacrifice on the cross. So we're all going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <clears throat>
Thanks to Colin and Heather for leading our praise tonight. And uh, lovely to welcome you, to add to their welcome as you join with us in our worship today. And the Hampton and friend, family and friend, it's lovely to have uh, uh, parents and the girls and their friend. (laughs) Have I got it right? I think I have. Uh, And look forward to ministry uh, later on this evening. Friends, we have opportunity now to stand together and sing um, an opening praise, and it's a call to God to be gracious to us, to speak to us, to do what only God can do for the soul, and that is breathe his word into the soul which brings life. So we stand and we sing, speak, O Lord.
David's going to come and lead us now in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just take this opportunity now, Father God, to come before you in prayer. We bow our heads in respect and in reverence of you to acknowledge that you are the great and the mighty and true God. We thank you, Father God, for this your day. And even though the weather may not be what we would want, we thank you, Father God, for the many blessings that you bestow upon us each day and daily. And our Father God, we give you thanks for, for who we are, your children, for you made us in your image. And we thank you, Lord, for that you have made us in a way that we're intricate and personal and meaningful to your plan. We thank you, Father God, for the basic things that we possess, the things that we take for granted. And as we waken up each morning, Father God, we just give you thanks that we can, we can see your wonderful and great creation. We can see the homes where you have placed us the people that you have placed us with. And we give you thanks for that greatness, that knowledge to know that we are in safe places in accordance to your will. We thank you, Father God, for our sight, our hearing, our tastes, and the many senses that we have, Lord, which we, we sometimes just take for granted. We thank you for making us who we are. And we ask you, Father God, that you will ensure that we work here in this earth in a meaningful way for you and for your kingdom. We thank you for who we are. We thank you for the gifts that you give us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us so many things where we can work efficiently in your world and according to your plan. And Father God, as we give you thanks for the many blessings, Lord, we understand that we live in a very challenging world, a challenging place, in challenging times. And so, Father God, tonight we're mindful as we are literally four weeks of Christmas that there are many pressures on people's lives in this economic crisis that each of us face. We pray tonight, Father God, for those who are less fortunate than ourselves, we pray for those who tonight, Father God, are struggling to understand how they could potentially meet tomorrow or the beginning of a new week. Be they under pressure with their health, financial burdens or strains, be it family life in general, Father God. We just bring all of these folk who are, many who are known to us before you, Father God, in prayer. And we ask you, Father God, that you will reach out to them that you will wrap your arms of love around them and give them strength and peace and courage. We thank you, Father God, for this mission, this opportunity for our congregation, this place of worship to open this door, to allow your people, your children, to gather together in your name. We thank you, Father God, for the opportunity for this time of witness, this time of coming together uh, as 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 your people, to sing praises and to give thanks for the great things that we have. We thank you, Lord, for the 360 years of faithful ministry and outreach and, 
and witness that has occurred from this site. And we thank you, Father God, for the great work that has went on here down through so many generations. And we give thanks again for this mission. We give you thanks, Father God, for our convener, the Reverend Harris, who has been preaching faithfully here since Thursday evening. We thank you for him. We ask you, Father God, to continue to bless him in his ministry, not only as our convener in this time of vacancy, but in his own congregation at Scarva Street. We ask you, Lord, that you'd be with him and his family and all those around him, and you will continue to bless them in your work. We thank you, Father God, for those who have been involved in the planning, the preparation, and the participation in this mission time. We thank you for all those who have been involved and who have brought uh, their, the ministry of witness through music and song and through uh, conversations and interviews, Lord, before each and every one of us. And we give you thanks for them. We pray tonight, Father God, for uh, Dr. Uh, Gareth here, who is with us this evening. We ask you to continue to bless him in his ministry, not only here in this place tonight, Lord, but also in his professional career. And we just pray, Father God, for many blessings that we all have. We pray, Father God, that we will take a good, sharp look at ourselves as we consider the message that the Reverend Harris has been bringing forward to us this, this past few evenings. We pray, Father God, just for ourselves that we'll become stronger, bolder, we'll become encouraged, more confident that when we step beyond the front door and the front gates of this place that we will have the boldness to speak more confidently of you and the love that you have not only for us but the many people who we come in contact with. And Father God, we just pray that you will help us to keep our eyes solely focused on your son Jesus and on the cross. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for him. We thank you for the cross and all that has flowed from the cross. And we pray, Father God, just in the last few minutes of this prayer time together, Lord, that as we think about the many things that are in our own personal minds and in our own personal lives, Lord, that we want to bring these things towards you in a quiet time of prayer. And in doing so, Lord, we just ask you that you'll, you'll forgive us for our sins because we sin daily. And we ask you, Father God, you'll forgive us, that you'll, you'll make us stronger, that we'll be able to defeat the weaknesses that each of us possess. And so, Father God, as we consider all of these things, we bring to you the prayer, and we join together in that prayer that you taught us as children by joining together and, and praying together by saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, David, for leading us in prayer tonight. And it's lovely to uh, invite Gareth and his family and friend to come and uh, 
have a presentation of testimony and life stories and song. We're really looking forward to your ministry tonight. years since anybody asked us to sing it anything. Um, so uh, this is uh, Gareth, he'll be speaking to you later. I'm his wife, Barbara. Um, I used to sing with my friend Claire, but she has since hung up her microphone. So um, we've got our daughter, Bethany, with us tonight. And then I lost my voice, so I roped in my daughter, Eva, and my daughter, Charlotte, to sing with me. So you've got the upgraded version uh, tonight, so we might have to upgrade the Christmas presents a wee bit because of this big favour that I've asked for. Um, but the first song that the girls are going to sing is just a really simple, beautiful song about the love of Jesus and how he stoops down just to help us and to meet us in our need. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for having me. Um, I just have to remember about myself and what I do at work, so I should be able to remember some of those things, but excuse me if the nerves get hold. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, how I got um, into medicine, and um, some of the things that goes on in my work. I'm going to bring you into work, and if anyone's feeling faint, you can just slip out at any stage. Well, I've got some things, don't worry. So I grew up just outside Dremore, and my dad's side of the family, they uh, were from Danaclone. My grandparents worked in the mill. My dad, he was a joiner by trade and worked for a building contractor. And my mum's side of the family were there from four towns just outside of Brickland. And they were farmers. So no doctors in the immediate family. It wasn't sort of an automatic um, way to go for me. I became a Christian when I was quite young. I was still uh, Sunday school aged. I loved going to Sunday school. I loved hearing those stories from the Old Testament all the way through, speaking about Jesus and then what he had done for me through his death and resurrection, right through the New Testament. But I knew it wasn't enough just to hear. I had to believe. Uh, and one day after Sunday school, I just felt a real strong sense that it was now a time to make a decision myself. So I trusted him as my saviour, to ask him to forgive my sins and to follow him. And certainly when you go from a small country school, there was just four people in my class. I'm sure some people can relate to that here. And then going to big school, going on to Wallace and Lisburn, and it was a very different game. You realise that being a Christian isn't just a Sunday occupation. You really have to live it and follow him every day. And I suppose like, uh, from Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him. And I suppose that was very real for me in that environment I learned a few other things in school that I really liked people I suppose maybe going from a tiny school to a big one I sort of liked that uh, and I liked problem solving and I liked maths and science and I liked team sports I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do professional rugby player would have been good but um, uh, <laughs> yeah that wasn't going to work out uh, I think it was mum suggested, you know, you should really think about medicine. That would be good. But like a lot of suggestions parents make, it wasn't really well received. Uh, and then, yeah, and then um, I came around to the time for doing work experience and my friend, her brother worked in the Royal. And she says, you know, I don't really want to do medicine, but you, you're sort of interested. We'll go along and do it and see what you think. Uh, and I was really hooked. It was really what I really wanted to do. I was a little bit overwhelmed by the medical library because it was just full of books and books. And I didn't know how I would ever uh, learn half of that stuff, never mind all of it. So that was a bit intimidating. Um, but I decided that's what I was going to do. Filled in the application form and just had to get the grades. Yeah. Uh, and so a little bit of studying was commenced. Uh, unfortunately, just a few weeks before my A-levels, and my dad took sick and he died of lung cancer. I suppose um, those verses really hit home then. You've got to really put your faith in the Lord. The grades were got, thankfully. And off to Queen's University in Belfast. As a medical student, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Some people had a real clear idea. They wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. They had a real good idea. I wasn't too sure. And as a medical student and a junior doctor, I did lots of different types of specialties. And in the end, I worked in Craigavon in emergency medicine, and it was there that I said, well, listen, that really suits me. 
and that's what I'm going to do. So I've been a consultant for 12 years and I've been working in the Southern Trust for 10. And let's see, we'll show you. There you go. So this is where I work. I work in both Craigavonary Hospital and Daisy Hill Hospital. Um, and I am going to sort of tell you about some of the patients I might see um, and some of the things I might do. Um, now, yeah. So this slide is up for a few reasons. Some people say, what do you actually call that place you work in? People call it so many different things. Well, it sort of ages you. If you call it an emergency department, you're young. If you call it an accident emergency, you're middle-aged, like Colin there. Uh, And if you call it casualty, you're old. Um, That's the definition. And the other reason this slide is up, there's been so many television programs based on where I work. Um, this is obviously his ERs, an American one, 24 hours in any, Scrubs, Casually. That's just to name a few. Um, I think there's lots of reasons for it. It's sort of like the whole of um, the population from young and old, from rich and poor, are all shoved through this uh, one small area. And lots of them are having life crises at the same time. Uh, and you have all these sorts of personalities from really nice people to really horrible people. And that's just the staff that are never there, never mind anything else. Um, and as I was preparing, I sort of thought back, you know something? There's been some really interesting storylines in the television programs, but you know, some of them actually do reflect real life. And in my experience, we've had the floods, the, pipe, the pipes burst one day, the whole place was flooded in the middle of everyone. We've had the place gone on fire, small fire, but it still got on fire. We've had snowstorms, and all the doctors had us live down in Gilly Carson's house for a few days. That was good. We had a bomb scare. Somebody phoned in one day and said, there's a bomb left near short stay ward, which made no sense to me, but, um, you know, I asked them for a code word, but, but not that I knew what that was, but I had a closed place for a while. All sorts of things from army men to IRA men, we have seen it. And sometimes a bit of humour thrown in there as well. Um, there was one gentleman in, and he had been, he'd been shot a few times, seemed normal at the time and we were trying to work out how many holes he had in him and which were entrance and exit wings and one of my consultant colleagues said to him excuse me were you running towards the gunman or away from the gunman and it just I thought that was very funny because who would be running towards a gunman um, but we have all sorts of things and in fact one day even one of the doctors brought in a wounded dog but um, but really told her that wasn't not going to go down well so all sorts of things um, before I go any further, I really would say we're team. We're doing a, a team board here. We're, we're reading pictures. I'm not sure if we're going to take our pictures with masks on or not, but we're redoing it. So there's lots of people from physios, OTs, receptionists, uh, radiographers, lab staff, doctors, nurses. We uh, don't do it on our own, of course. All right, so we'll, we'll take you to the first patient. And here's a slit lamp on the right-hand side. And this is what we use to look at eyes. Um, certainly welders flash, metal farm bodies and eyes, infections, all sorts of things. And we use this equipment to look in. And it's amazing. I, I like looking after eye injuries, but it's really quite a challenge because people's eyesight is so precious. And if I use another instrument and look at the back of the eye, that's what you see on the other side. The little circle is the optic nerve going into your, to your brain. And then that pattern of all is all the blood vessels the arteries and veins and like some of the movies you see people getting a retina scan and that's because if you get in a safe or something 
Um, that's because that pattern is unique to you. Just like fingerprints or your DNA, uh, that little pattern is unique to every single individual. As a doctor, I, I certainly were taught, and I, of course I do value life, and to protect it and look after it. And daily, I'm just in awe of how unique and special each of us uh, are. Men are more prone to accidents. That is true. Uh, men are more prone to coming in from uh, injuries and accidents. I was going to say men are more prone to stupidity, but I thought that was a little bit harsh. Um, it, it's uh, all sorts of things. Fish hooks and fingers falling off, anything. Uh, putting their hands in machinery that shouldn't really. Um, shooting yourself in the foot is not just a phrase. I've seen that a few times. Uh, and one gentleman, he injured himself with a tin of beans. Well, it was really a screwdriver. He didn't have a tin opener, so he decided he would attack the tin of beans with the screwdriver, but he put it through his hand rather than the tin of beans. So that's, that's the sort of thing men do. Um, men, I don't really have a point to that, but it's just that's, accidents are really important. Uh, so what about from young to old is what I see, uh, and this is uh, myself and Bernadine in the paediatric area, and about 20 to 25% of all my patients are children, and it's enjoyable some days, it's stressful and noisy some others, and it's a real challenge. It's really difficult, actually. Um, we see Grannies and grandas, all sorts of people, all really stressed. I think a lot of my grey hairs are from looking after uh, children. I'll maybe do a little bit of health promotion. Children eat anything. So watch button batteries, magnets, um, dishwasher tablets, watch all those sorts of things. Um, now obviously, the youngest child you can have is a newborn baby. No pictures, don't worry. Um, and every year, one, one or, once or twice maybe even, there'll be somebody trying to deliver a baby in A&E or actually succeeding. Um, and it's my ambition to have a baby named after me because I've delivered them, but that hasn't happened just yet. So that's the very youngest. Oh. And then this is up to the, to the older. Now, we don't really call old people old people anymore because it's very hard to find. Call them frail, but I'm not sure that's a really good term either. Um, so... Um, this is not an, an older person, but this is one of our doctors. I'll tell you about her in a, in a second. So we see lots of people and patients who are frail. It makes up a significant portion of my patients, and that's becoming more and more common. Maybe falls or infections or broken bones or uh, heart attacks or short of breath, all sorts of things. Um, and I, I love uh, talking to patients and hearing all the sorts of things that they, they have done in their lives and sort of distract them from... Uh, what they've done to themselves or what they're going through. Um, and we're actually trying to provide more services that uh, don't even involve the emergency department, but uh, involve going to people's houses, looking after them where they are, maybe residential or nursing homes. Um, so that is becoming more and more important. Um, the yellow blanket and socks here are for people who are frail and high risks of falls. So it just helps staff and patients. There's grippy things in the sole of the feet. So patients are less prone to fall when they're with us, and it also visually helps us see. However, if you've got one of these on you, you know you're definitely old. There you go. You're only old if you get a yellow blanket in any. Uh, that's the definition. Uh, so that's the whole spectrum of really what I would see from young to old, uh, physical health, mental health, everything. Accident emergency really should stand for anything and everything. Um, 
this is uh, just like to show you this. This is the defibrillator, just uh, down from where I live now, where a gentleman lived called Prof Pantridge. He worked in the Royal, and he helped def uh, uh, develop the modern defibrillator. Uh, and it was really, really massive when it was in the Royal. And now it's just this tiny little box. I'm sure there's probably one maybe in this building or close by. So your heart normally beats in a normal rhythm. It's got its own pacemaker tissue uh, in, inside it. And actually, if you took your heart out and had to give it the right oxygen and nutrients, it would just keep going. It would just keep beating away uh, for a while. Um, uh, and it's amazing. But if you're really sick, if you have a heart attack or something really catastrophic happens, the electrical activity in your heart starts to fibrillate all crazy, goes mad. And that's not good. You're lying, essentially dying. So I spend some of my time teaching people how to use defibrillators uh, and then providing services maybe at sports events or in the hospital where we teach advanced life support. And what I teach them is you have a very limited amount of time when the heart is just gone from beating normally to fibrillating to not working at all. And that's when a shock works best. Whenever you shock the heart and stop the fibrillation and let the normal pacemaker kick back in again and restarts the heart. So that's what I spend some of my time teaching others how to give advanced life support. Last few thoughts to finish with. I've said before, humans are special. We are a wonderful design. Complicated, intricate, fine-tuned. Um, if you were ever at an event like a birth or a death as well, you also get a sense that human life is very, very special. We have a limited lifespan. It is good to look after your physical and spiritual health. In medicine, we recognize both of those things, but really, it's really mainly in the field of palliative care that we are allowed to or encouraged to look at people's spiritual health as a, as a really important thing to do. Surely it's important that we... Um, just don't focus on people who know they've had a limited diagnosis. It's for everyone. We should look after our physical and spiritual health. Last one. This is a little pin that I wear on my lanyard, on my uniform. And it's the logo for the British Medical Association. It is a snake on a pole. Um, it's a symbol of healing that goes back a long way. I read of it in Numbers 21 and in some other places in the Bible. Jesus explains, this is a pointer to him, how he would die, how he could provide life for those who believe in him. I'd just like to read uh, John 3, where it reads, speaks of this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the girls now are going to sing. I'm not going to sing. The girls are going to sing, and then we'll hand back over. First Corinthians 15 verse 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So resurrected bodies, living with God forever um, in a place that he has perfected, that is the ultimate hope of the Christian. And I guess this next song, um, really the challenge for Christians is to really grasp the reality of that truth and to live accordingly. But maybe you're here tonight or you're listening tonight and for you, you think Christians maybe are to be pitied. You're maybe a bit dismissive of this idea of Christianity. 
but you can still sense that there is something, uh, there's something wrong with the world as it is now, and there's something maybe wrong with you, and that maybe um, after this life, there is something else. And so our prayer for you tonight would be that the Holy Spirit would just prompt you to consider Christ and what he has done for you, and consider the faith of um, maybe the person who has invited you here tonight, or the person who has asked you um, to listen in. So the girls are just going to sing now a lovely song. It's co-written by the Gettys, so you might know it. Feel free, please, to join in if you do know it. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. Our Hope in Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death.
presentation. Thanks so much for sharing your life and sharing your faith with us tonight. Friends, we come to God's Word. We read three short passages from Mark chapter 14 and 15. The last couple of nights we've looked at the cost of salvation and the payment of salvation, just simply entitled this, The End. And then tomorrow evening, we look at the beginning. The end, speaking of the cross, that Jesus' work was completed. And then tomorrow night, the beginning, the resurrection, life in all its fullness revealed, a life that we can share with God through Christ. So we read firstly from Mark chapter 14 at verse 53. This is just the, Jesus has been arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the other chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even in their testimony, they did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. The guards took him and beat him. Moving over into chapter 15 at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and turned him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. 
But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. And then reading from verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then wove a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. He did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. And reading finally from verse 33. At the sixth hour, Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone now. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, And saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Ending there at verse 39 in chapter 15. Friends, we think of the end tonight. Those final hours of Jesus' life on earth at the cross. But it wasn't the end in the sense of things were over. It was the end in the sense that everything had been accomplished. All that had been purposed for the Messiah to do was complete. We read in John chapter 19 that when 
Jesus died, he died as no other victim on a cross. Every other victim would have expired and they would have drooped. Jesus did the opposite. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Perhaps that was something that the centurion saw because he had witnessed many such executions, but no one died like this man in any way. Friends, I want to take us through these, really the first and last passages particularly. Jesus was on trial for his life. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken to Caiaphas' residence. And there he met with the whole Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It was made up of two types of persons. It was the Pharisee and the Sadducee. The Pharisees were uh, the so-called learned people of the day who knew God's law and um, propagated the rabbinical laws that had been passed down through the generations in a way to keep the people in check, really. And the people didn't really know all these laws, and they depended on the Pharisees to tell them. And then there were the Sadducees. They were generally rich land rulers. They were the moneyed people. And the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't really get on. They had different beliefs. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And it was quite an unruly council and an unhappy council. But they wanted rid of Jesus. On trial for his life, this testimony of Jesus, this is astounding, friend. Listen to what he said. The high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we have been expecting? Are you the one promised in the scriptures that we have? And Jesus simply says, I am. And just so that they would know exactly what he was saying, He quotes from Daniel 7, verse 13, and Psalm 110, verse 1. You will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Psalm 110, that psalm begins, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I put all your enemies under your feet. The Sanhedrin knew exactly what Jesus was saying. God the Father, I am his eternal son. I am the son of man who was promised. And the Father will put all enemies under my feet. And that includes you. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Back in the days of the wandering in the desert under Moses, God came in the Shekinah cloud, the glory of God, 
settled on the tabernacle, Moses went in. And when Moses came out, his face glowed because he'd been in the presence of God. Jesus, on trial for his life, says, I am the Messiah. I am the one who's promised. And I will sit in judgment upon you one day when I come in my Shekinah glory. No wonder the high priest tore his clothes. We don't need any more witnesses. Don't you hear this blasphemy? Jesus doesn't defend himself terribly well because he doesn't need to. Because he knows the end of this trial. And he knows what will happen. He will be going to the cross. But friends, there's something, there's something very precious and otherworldly here because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but he's also Son of Man. He's in our flesh. We read in the Scriptures that, that he's hungry and he needs something to eat. He's thirsty at the well of Sychar and he wants something to drink. He experiences our human needs. And when Jesus goes to the cross and has the crown of thorns thrust on his head and the, the nails thrust into his wrists and ankles, when he has the beating of the, of, the, of the rod and the beating of the whip on his back, he is experiencing a human pain for the very first time. Being God did not prepare him for the human pain he would experience. That was a new experience he would have, God in our flesh. But as we find out, that wasn't his real pain. It wasn't the beating. It wasn't the mockery. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the insults. It was something much more which we come to. But the Sanhedrin couldn't convict Jesus and they couldn't put him to death. So they had to take him to Pilate. And in the morning, that's what they did. They took him to the Roman procurator, the one who was in charge of, of the province. Pilate, of course, didn't want anything to do with it because when he spoke with Jesus, he sensed there was nothing that this man had done that was wrong. In Luke's gospel, we read that Pilate's wife comes in and says, I have nothing to do with this man. I had a terrible dream. And it's not really Jesus on trial here. It's Pilate. Would he do the right thing? But of course, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He doesn't speak. Because he doesn't have to. He's already told his disciples that he's come to die. Jesus was in control when he was before the Sanhedrin. He was in control when he was before Pilate. And he would be in control when they would nail him 
to the cross. Later on in that chapter, we read that after mocking him and beating him, they led him out to be crucified. In verse 24 in chapter 15, we read, they crucified him. None of the gospel writers describe the crucifixion. It was a most brutal act. It was humiliating. It was extremely painful. The person would die in part from shock and in part from asphyxiation. That's why at times they would break the legs of those who were being crucified because without power in your legs, you couldn't push yourself up. You couldn't release your diaphragm to get a breath. And so you... You died more quickly, not able to get the breaths that you needed. Jesus was brutalized. He was put on the cross. But rather than focusing on on, on that physical horror of pain that Jesus went through, Mark tells us what it meant. They crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Let me take you back into the Old Testament, to the Psalms, in Psalm 22. And reading firstly just a few verses, verse 7. Now, David wrote this Psalm about a thousand years before Jesus was born. And David wrote about something beyond his or any person's understanding of that day. Crucifixion was brought in as a means of torture and execution by the Romans some 300 years before Jesus was born. So for 700 years, this made absolutely no sense to anyone who would read it. The Spirit of God came upon David. And David, writing of his own experience of turmoil and trouble, wrote words that were to make sense a thousand years later. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. What David wrote a thousand years before 
came true in Jesus that day. And when Jesus was paying for the sins of people like you and me, we read of darkness coming over the earth. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, the Jewish day began at six in the morning. So the third hour was nine o'clock in the morning. The sixth hour was midday when the sun would be up. So at the sixth hour, midday, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, 12 o'clock to three, the whole region was covered in darkness. Of course, some people say this was maybe an an eclipse, a solar eclipse. But of course, that only lasts for three or four minutes. But of course, Passover was the time of the full moon where you couldn't have a solar eclipse. So God caused darkness to cover the face of Jerusalem at that time because his own son was experiencing what hell would be for those who would not be saved. That's what Jesus was experiencing. The eternal Son of God, the eternal Father, having that perfect relationship and harmony and love for all eternity, broken For three hours when Jesus was hanging on the cross in darkness, that was his pain. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the mockery. That's why he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't I feel the love of your presence? Why don't I know your supporting arms underneath me? Why can't I speak and you answer? But Jesus knew. He was bearing the sins of the world. He was dying in the sinner's place. He was tasting what hell would be. Hell is an eternal separation between man and God. And because Jesus is eternal, a split second of separation, let alone three hours, is of eternal magnitude. And the eternal Son has the right and authority to take our sins and and cast them as far as possible from us that they are never seen again because he has borne their eternal punishment. But on that cross in the darkness, Jesus suffered for us. Let me take you back into the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 10. It was the ninth plague. It was a plague of darkness. And before that, ninth plague would be rightly through, the tenth plague was being prepared where the firstborn son would die. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so the darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anything else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Darkness over the earth in preparation for God's judgment where the firstborn of the Egyptians would die. But here, in Mark's gospel, on Calvary's hill, it was God's firstborn who was going to die, to die in the sinner's place. Just a couple of final things in this passage. Verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Signifying that God was doing this. The temple in Jerusalem had an outer court where Gentiles could go into. It had an inner court where only Jewish people could go. And then there was what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was a small area. And it was shielded by a heavy curtain. And once a year, the high priest could go through that curtain and he would take a bowl of blood, the blood of a lamb. And he would go to what was the Ark of the Covenant, an acacia box covered with gold. And on top of that box, there was a lid. It was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat at each end had two cherubim, two images of angels. And they were poised in judgment. Now inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And the picture God is presenting to the people is that there's my law. My angels are poised in judgment over you because you've broken my law. But once a year, the high priest could go in and pour that blood over the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And as the blood covered the lid, there was that picture of a covering, a covering over of sin by the blood of the Lamb. But of course, the high priest did that every year. Because the blood of a lamb doesn't take away sin. But the blood of the lamb of God does. The Messiah who came. And on the cross when he shed his blood to death, the curtain was torn top to bottom because God was doing this. The access was now free. Not just for one man once a year, but for anyone at any time to come through that curtain in the name of the Christ who shed his blood and that person can come right into God's presence. One last thought. The centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, saw how he died and said, surely, this man was the son of God. 
The centurion was a man who'd gone up through the ranks. He wasn't a, a nobleman's son given a position as centurion. No. He'd been a soldier. He'd won his commission. He'd put many people to death in battle and by crucifixion. He had seen it all. He was probably a brutal man, a feared man. He had been in charge of the execution of Jesus. And when he saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. Friends, is this our faith? In the darkness, the light that was in Christ shone out to this centurion. And he saw Jesus for who he was. We know him as the one who was in control before the Sanhedrin. The one who was in control before Pilate. The one who was in control as he was being flogged and spat upon. The one who was in control as they nailed him to the cross. The one who, having accomplished salvation by enduring hell for his people, could buy his head and give up his spirit. Without Christ, we are truly lost. But with him, we are eternally saved. Friend, if your faith is as yet not in Jesus, don't leave tonight without praying a simple prayer from your heart. And love him. Because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, how we rejoice in a word that is otherworldly, a word that speaks of God choosing to die in our flesh to give us life. God whose standard is perfection. God whose heaven is altogether lovely. Which means we can't go there as we are. And so God in mercy sent his son to live our life, to die our death, that we could be set free. Lord, we know there is nothing more attractive in this world than the nature of Jesus. And so, Lord, let that attractiveness by your Spirit draw us to him and let our faith be simple but true 
and thankful. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, just before we sing our final praise, uh, just to let you know, retiring offering is tonight just at the door. We don't have any expense for our mission, so all our offering is going to Ukraine to date. Over the last two nights, there's been £330 given, and all monies will be going to help the people in their plight in Ukraine. To remind you of tomorrow night service is at 7 o'clock, the earlier time on Sunday, and some tea, coffee, and refreshments will be served after service, God willing, tomorrow night. Friends, we sing a final praise, which is just a lovely phrase to have on our lips. My Jesus, my Savior, we stand to sing. Lord, we bless you that we are in your presence and we thank you for your speaking voice by your spirit. 
Continue to bless our hearts, we pray, and enable us to honor and serve you in return. We ask our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.